with the uh, first pick in the draft, the Indianapolis Colts select quarterback, University of Tennessee, Peyton Manning. Bruce Arians was there in 1998 when Peyton Manning showed up as a rookie eager to lift the Colts from the league cellar. Really excited about what's ahead and just uh, proud that the Colts put their faith in me. I'm looking forward to the challenge of uh, getting the program going and uh, it's a really exciting time right now. And Arians was there 14 years later when Andrew Luck showed up. And all he had to do was replace the greatest player in franchise history. Anxious to get started, you know, you want to be part of the team, you want to get started and get going, and you know, can't wait to be in a new locker room with a bunch of great guys. The coach saw a lot of similarities between the two. The day he showed up, very similar to Peyton. When Peyton showed up the first day, it was his football team. And Andrew showed up, and it was like that day, that day he got all the respect of the defense. Pretty much anyone connected to the Colts, teammates, coaches, executives, those in the media, recognized right away that Andrew Luck was special. Andrew Luck, I was like, man, well, I remember just seeing him throw his first ball, first practice. It just looked different. I remember Reggie Wayne getting interviewed, saying like, hey, I'm fortunate enough to play with two Hall of Fame quarterbacks, Peyton Manning and then Andrew Luck, who was like his second week with, with the Colts. I thought that he was headed to the Hall of Fame. I really did. I felt, took Peyton, what, seven years to win a playoff game? This guy won a playoff game and is... Second year? It was, honestly, just if you take the reporter hat off, it was fun as hell. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing better than just a, a quarterback who can make magic in the fourth quarter. And he did it over and over and over again. This is Luck, Episode 3, The Arrival. In the summer of 2012, Andrew Luck was 22 years old. Luck would lead a much different Colts team than Manning had the last time he'd worn the horseshoe. The Colts were now in full rebuild mode. During the offseason, they'd cut longtime stalwarts Dallas Clark, Gary Brackett, and Melvin Bullitt. Jeff Saturday was in Green Bay. Manning was in Denver. I am thrilled to be here. I'm looking forward to meeting my new teammates and doing everything I can to help this franchise win another Super Bowl. Colts would end up having to start six rookies, including five on offense. Arians, now a Super Bowl-winning head coach, was Luck's first offensive coordinator in the NFL. But when you look at we had six rookies playing on offense, both tight ends, a running back, a tackle, a center. Everybody's a rookie. And in one game, I think we had seven rookies, and we win. That doesn't happen. But Luck was never just a rookie quarterback. He was the face of a franchise from the moment he arrived, the bridge to a new era. It was Jim Irsay, the owner who tearfully said goodbye to Manning the previous March, who pulled Luck aside before his first training camp. You don't have to fill Peyton's shoes, the owner told him. And Luck never forgot that. There's not a lot that phases him. I think he understood and He came in with the right attitude, which is, I'm not Peyton. I'm not going to be Peyton. That's Bob Kravitz, a.k.a. Andrew Luck's agent, as Manning once called him. The Indianapolis columnist who'd been the first in town to predict the Colts would move on from Peyton Manning the previous spring in order to draft Andrew Luck. I, I think he's very self-assured. I think he's very comfortable in his own skin. I, I think he understood what he was walking into. He handled it about as well as anybody could handle it. He didn't try to be Peyton. Uh, he didn't try to be uh, a media darling. He, In fact, his first year, he didn't do any ads. You know, Robert Griffin, and this is no slight on him, but Robert Griffin that first year was doing all kinds of ads. And, you know, Andrew decided not to. Andrew and, and uh, Wilson decided that's not, he wanted to, 
establish himself as a quarterback in the NFL before he did anything. In fact, Luck made a conscious decision early on. He'd hold off on any national ads until he started producing on the field. He left millions on the table. And when I asked him about it, he didn't seem to care that much. We turned down more things than I can remember, his agent and uncle, Will Wilson, once told me. I think he understood his situation, and I thought he handled it about as well as he could handle it. I've never met anyone like Andrew. Never. And that's that's a compliment. Duquel Jackson, a longtime NFL linebacker, would spend three seasons as Luck's teammate. It's a compliment. I know a, a ton of really smart people that are a lot smarter than me. I've always felt like Andrew was given this guy given ability, but he was much more than just a game much more than a game of football, much more than just, you know, winning a ton of Super Bowls and having everyone remember him by his arm strength and arm talent and the teams that he was associated with. Andrew never struck me as that guy. As crazy as that may sound, you know, that's I only identified as a football player. And I submerged myself within my craft because I wasn't the tallest, fastest, strongest, and all these other things. So I had to pivot and realize, okay, how can I maximize my earning potential? How can I just, you know, maximize my career? Andrew never felt that pressure. And I think that's what helped him in big games and keep that calmness about him. Luck torched the Colts defense in his first minicamp. I'll never forget the story Bruce Arians told. He loved what he was seeing from his young quarterback. So he decided to take the opportunity to needle some of the team's defensive veterans. So yeah, Andrew comes in and, and we just light the defense up. And the DB's just a stretch in a circle. So I found all the black stuff I could find. Black shoes, black socks, black shorts. And I, walk, and I walked right through them. Gerard Powers, coach, what's up with all the black? Looks good, man. I said, I'm going to a funeral. Really? Who's? The y'alls. Because Andrew killed these motherfuckers yesterday. And they just fell out laughing. <laughs> Arians designed his entire scheme around his rookie quarterback's prodigious skill set. Luck wasn't just accurate. He had a cannon for an arm. And Arians loved seven-step drops and deep downfield throws. His motto was simple. No risk it, no biscuit. Nobody likes to throw the ball deep as much as B.A. loves to chuck it down the field. Chuck Pagano was in his first few months as the Colts head coach. And now he's got a guy that certainly can do it at a high rate, very, very accurate, and dropping dimes on the guys. And, you know, you remember that story about him coming out in that mini camp and changing plays at the line of scrimmage. And, you know, we've had all those other guys there, all those rookies that we drafted on offense, you know, Dwayne and Kobe and T.Y. and so forth. And, you know, he's checking out of things and changing plays and making audibles. And nobody's ever heard that before. And Andrew's never been there. So everybody's just kind of scratching their head going, you know, where the hell did this come from? How did this happen? You know, is this guy really this bright? It's really hard being an NFL quarterback. Like, really hard. It's even harder being the NFL quarterback who replaces Peyton Manning. But even in the face of that intense spotlight, Pagano saw in his rookie quarterback a player who was ready to lead a locker room full of grown men. He was a winner, and he brought the best out of everybody. But because he was so humble and he was so talented and so smart, I mean, you would never know that. Anybody in a locker room that's been on, you know, any team of any sort, you know, all you want 
is your teammates, especially your best ones, you know, to be your best leaders and your best players and your hardest worker. And that's what that's what he was. I mean, going where he went, the number one overall pick and coming out of Stanford with all the accolades that he had earned and uh, all the honors that he, he had received, you know, just to come in and be the, you know, first guy in the building, the last guy to leave, strike up a conversation with everybody, treat everybody, you know, the same. Um, it didn't matter if you were, you know, a veteran guy like Reggie, you know, coming back for whatever season that was and, and then, you know, or a rookie. I mean, you just had to respect and admire with all his greatness and all his talents. He was just he was just one of the guys. The players and the coaches, they took to luck immediately, drawn to this goofy architecture major who, when he got on the field, flipped a switch and become the fiercest competitor of all of them. He would never belittle anybody or try to tear anybody down. But if he had to have a tough conversation, he wasn't afraid to have those conversations. You know, and he, he always made sure that he was out front doing everything, you know, so that you could have those conversations. Because if, you, if you're not willing to work and put the time in, you can't have those. And obviously he did that. But he wasn't afraid to have those conversations. Arians literally threw everything at luck. And the 22-year-old took it in stride. Peter King, now of NBC Sports, was covering the NFL for Sports Illustrated at the time. He remembers speaking with people all over the league who were blown away by Luck's maturation. There were a lot of people who, who I knew pretty well who basically just thought that he was a 50-year-old man in terms of intelligence and, and just knowledge about everything. And uh, they were on the bus before the first game that Andrew Luck ever played. It was at Chicago. And they were on the bus on the way to Soldier Field from the hotel. And Andrew Luck started talking about, hey, cool, look, there's the uh, there's the Field Museum or whatever the museum was. I think it was the Field Museum. It, just talking about things that two and a half hours before your first game, you're not supposed to be talking about. But that was how much it was, you know, his life was just not totally ruled by football. The Colts lost that opener to the Bears 41-21. And a few weeks later, they were 1-2 heading into a week four bye when the organization was hit with stunning news. Pagano had been diagnosed with leukemia. It's been a, um, you know, very difficult week. Colts owner Jim Irsay announcing the news. We did... um, have uh, the coach uh, go in, get um, fully evaluated on the bruising and his fatigue. The conclusion um, came down um, that he did have leukemia. Pagano would spend the next few months undergoing chemotherapy at the IU Health Simon Cancer Center in downtown Indianapolis. If he returned at all that year, the doctor said, it wouldn't come until the very end of the regular season. The no-risk-it, no-biscuit Bruce Arians was given the keys as interim coach. And what happened next was nothing short of astonishing. It was such a fairy tale season with Chuck being sick and those guys went in for him. And Andrew was, every week was a story. The best one was Green Bay. You know, the first game, Chuck's sick. We miss a blitz and the dude just creams him. And I thought he was done. I thought he was out. He gets us a nice hit, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, nice hit, dude. He gets up next play. And we score in the last play of the game, beat him. We were like, 17-point underdogs. Again, Reggie Wayne to the top. We're going to continue to point out where is he at. There he is. And he got to the end zone on the stretch. And, uh, and, and beat him the first game, and then Chuck got the game ball. That was probably the biggest thing ever. I could be proud of a group of guys 
and Aunt Lola. And Aunt Chuck was, he was coaching his ass off. <laughs> and we did it for him. The win over the Packers was a major turning point. From there, the Colts ripped off nine wins in 12 weeks. Luck became a bona fide star. He immediately showed how clutch he was, leading seven fourth quarter comebacks that season, the most ever by a rookie quarterback. The most ridiculous one came in Detroit. The Colts were down two scores with a little over three minutes left in the game. Andrew, if we could keep it close, he was going to win it in the last two minutes. The Detroit game is amazing. He throws a pick. He comes back, and he's going crazy on the sidelines. You guys stop him. I'll score. You guys stop him. We'll score again. Defense stops him. He hits Levon Brazil for a touchdown. Defense stops him. He goes down and scores the last play of the game. Final seconds. Luck steps. Luck. A little flip. Donnie Avery. He's in. Touchdown. Andrew Luck has shocked the Lions. And just he willed his way to win. That's what Brady has. That's what Peyton had. That's what Ben had. But Andrew had it in a different way. Kravitz was in Detroit covering the game that day. And in the post-game locker room, he ran into Colts general manager Ryan Grigson. I saw Ryan Grigson in the locker room after that game. And he just walked over to me and he said, can you believe that freaking throw? Can you believe that freaking throw? He didn't say freaking. But that that's when I knew, holy crap, you know, this guy's this is a generational talent. I mean, to think that they went eleven and five with a completely rebuilt team that first year. Kravitz is right. Nobody, nobody saw the Colts going eleven and five that season. It was a remarkable record for a team that was in a rebuild and had lost its coach to cancer for twelve games. Pagano, healthy once again, would return for a week seventeen win over Houston. But a week later, the miracle season ended as the Colts fell twenty four to nine in the wild card round in Baltimore. It was time to scrap the rebuild. The Colts were coming, and luck was the biggest reason why. Mike Sando, now of The Athletic, was covering the league for ESPN at the time. He did, in the absence of the great support around him. I think that's how all the top quarterbacks are measured, is are, is your team winning? And if you remove that one piece, would the whole thing collapse? And we saw that happen with Peyton Manning. I mean, they went from being a competitive team. You'd have to look and see what their Vegas win total was that year that they ended up playing Curtis Painter instead. But it was probably double-figure wins. They were probably one of the favorites to get to the Super Bowl or in the playoffs, whatever. And you remove that one guy, and you're picking number one overall. I think to then plug in Andrew Luck, they, they were suddenly a competitive playoff team in those early years. It was You instantly knew again that you had one of those unique players. But even as the wins piled up, there was something simmering beneath the surface. An unease within the building that Luck's style was too aggressive, too reckless. Same as he did at Stanford, he refused to let a play die. He relished the contact, and he had little interest in sliding. What made him great also made him a risk, and the issue would only intensify in the years to come. God bless B.A. That offense is not built for a team with no offensive line and a quarterback who is completely and utterly unafraid. Robert Mays, who'd written about Luck's impact on the Stanford program for Grantland, remembers watching him early in his Colts run, being awed by Luck's ability, yet unnerved by the punishment he was taking. That was part of the problem, is that you had this style of play 
that had this guy who was like, I'm going to hold on to it. I love taking hits. I love the physicality of the game. And it starts to create this world where it becomes untenable over time. They're good because he is this otherworldly quarterback prospect, one of those few, few guys who just by virtue of him being on the field makes you relevant and competitive. That Those guys come along so rarely where context ceases to matter. It's like, I'm here, so you can't ignore us. And that's what the Colts were early on under Andrew Luck. But that kind of overlooks all these underlying factors that ultimately became a big, big problem over time. In Luck's second year in the league, the Colts again went 11-5, and proving his rookie campaign was no fluke. Luck was coming into his own. T.Y. Hilton, a receiver Grigson had drafted out of Florida International in the third round in 2012, was establishing himself as one of the most dynamic deep threats in the league. Luck's going to air it out. He's got his man Hilton. He's got it. Touchdown, Indianapolis. 73 yards, and that'll get you back in the game. And despite a leaky offensive line and an inconsistent run game, surely you remember Trent Richardson's 2.9 yards per carry average, the Colts were becoming a real threat in the AFC. In their playoff opener against Kansas City, Luck, the comeback artist, painted his masterpiece. Chuck Pagano. This is his first full year on the sidelines after battling leukemia last season. Down 28 points in the third quarter, Luck and the Colts would go on to win 45-44. It was the second biggest playoff comeback in NFL history. Steps up. Long look, and he's got Hilton for the touchdown! For Pagano, the play that still sticks with him all these years later came in the fourth quarter. The Colts were down 10, but inside the Chiefs' five-yard line when running back Donald Brown lost the football. Without a second of hesitation, Luck scooped it up. And he didn't dive on the ball. He didn't protect it for another down. He picked it up and dove straight into the end zone. It was backyard football at its finest. Fumbled on that down on the goal line, and the ball squirts out of there, and then he picks it up and and basically triple jumps himself, you know, into the end zone. And And they give it to him again. He fumbles the ball, and Luck is there to pick it up talk about luck reaches for the goal line and scores a touchdown i mean that one right there just to show the instincts that that kid had luck threw for 443 yards and four touchdowns in just his second playoff game ever and afterwards pagano a man admittedly prone to a little bit of hyperbole predicted that luck would one day go down as one of the best if not the best to ever play the game as much as luck's legend was growing on the field his quirky off-the-field persona was starting to attract a following. Welcome back to another episode of the Andrew Luck Book Club Podcast. I am thrilled to be joined by a friend, a great author, T.A. Barron, Tom Barron. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Andrew. I'm delighted to be with you. More on that after the break. There's this idea we have of quarterbacks, what their personalities should be. Think of Clint Eastwood. Think Harrison Ford, swaggering, gunslingers, iron-jawed leaders of men, unflinching in the biggest moments. With Luck, he was a leader, but swaggering isn't exactly the word you'd use to describe him. He's like goofy cool. That laugh, that neck beard, uh, the whole thing is like goofy cool. And it was, a, it was just a joy coaching him because I put the stuff in. If he had a question, he'd come down and, what do you, what, what's this really mean? We're looking for this. Oh, I got that. It was a joy coaching him because he got it. He got it and he could get it to his buddies. He could tell them what he was thinking, what I'm looking for. Hey, when, when you run this route, I'm looking for this. T.Y. was a rookie. Planer, Kobe Allen, Allen was, all those guys. And it's like, hey, 
you get this, I'll, we'll win. So much of luck in those early years ran counter to what we're used to with celebrity quarterbacks. He was refreshingly original, unrelentingly authentic, and even a little bit stubborn. He famously kept using a small flip phone. Teammates would complain about it because when they texted him a picture, he couldn't even open it up. He used a Velcro wallet with his college logo on it. His locker was always a mess, and he'd let his beard grow, he said, because he was just too lazy to shave it. On game days, he'd wear these boxy suits from Joseph A. Bank, a far cry from the fashionable ensemble so many of his counterparts in the league would slip on after their games. Yeah, we used to get on him, I was like, Andrew, come on, man, you make entirely too much money. Buy you five suits. Dequell Jackson says Luck's life priorities just didn't include fashion. Buy you five suits a year, and you don't have to work, you don't have to deal with it for the next 10 years or so. Just buy you some suits that fit. You know, it's like, he just didn't care. He did not care about some of the things that everyone else was wrapped up in, but you know, you know they don't make them like that. Interview sessions with Luck were different. I'll be honest, I was a bit confused at the play. You know, they, they lined up in a look that they'd only shown once before all year. Um, you know, I was like, a little bit, little bit of, <laughs> you know. Once asked something he didn't like, Luck politely responded that he took umbrage with the question, then admitted to a reporter afterwards that he'd been waiting for weeks to use that phrase. Peppered another time about a failed fourth down conversion at the line of scrimmage, he shook his head and vowed that the decision would remain a poor one for perpetuity. Who talks like that? A locker room after a win, yeah. You'll be hard-pressed to find a more joyful, <laughs> you know, spot, I think, in the world. Uh, it's addicting, it really is. And, you wish you, you weren't so much a slave to that, that feeling, that, that emotion, but, uh, but I think we are. And On one end, Luck was becoming one of the young faces of the league, and worse yet, a celebrity quarterback, something he had no interest in. He tolerated the external demands of his position, but he never enjoyed them. I remember having some insightful conversations during this time with Matt Hasselbeck, who'd signed with the Colts in 2013 as Luck's backup. He had tremendous perspective on all of it. Hasselbeck had been Brett Favre's backup in Green Bay early in his career before becoming the franchise quarterback in Seattle, leading the Seahawks to a Super Bowl appearance in 2005. A lot of guys love being in the NFL, Hasselbeck once told me. Not a lot of them just love football. Andrew just loves football. You'd get the sense, he continued, that with Andrew, he'd love it just the same if there were no fans, no TV cameras, no paychecks, no records to be made. When I first took the job, I first flew to Indianapolis. I was there for a couple weeks, and he was out in Stanford, and he came in town, he and Nicole, and so my wife and I were going to take them to dinner. Brian Schottenheimer would become the Colts quarterback's coach in 2016. Schottenheimer says his non-football conversations with Luck were unlike any he'd had with any player. And I remember uh, sitting at dinner and just, talking through, you know, hey, what are some of your hobbies? What are some of the things that you do? And uh, and just listening to him talk about some of the books and the things that he read. Um, I mean, I don't remember exactly what they were, but just they're not on my bookshelf. Uh, they're not on most NFL quarterbacks' bookshelves. But he just, you know, he's just a fascinating personality. And I think when you first get to know him, you're, you're – trying to figure okay is this guy real like this is this is a little bit different but then the more you get to know him you're just blown away by uh his heart and you know the way that he treats not just the people in the building but really everybody so definitely a unique personality um but an unbelievably huge heart as a reporter you're always looking for a way to grab the attention of someone you're trying to interview for peter king he knew that bringing a book might do the trick with luck my encounters with him 
were unlike other encounters I would have with quarterbacks. I remember um, I brought him a book to training camp one year uh, because I had read a book and and I knew he was so into reading. So I just brought him this book and he was he just lit up. He thought that was the coolest thing. When uh, there was a book out uh, by a uh, a Stanford neurologist who died young and his wife ended up publishing the book. It was by a guy, a, a doctor named Paul Kalanithi, who was a gigantic Andrew Luck fan. Uh, when Andrew Luck was played at Stanford, Paul Kalanithi was, uh, was a rising, brilliant neurosurgeon who got ill and uh, he died. And his wife, he was, he was writing a book at the time of his death and his wife finished the book. The book came out. And I remember it might have been either his last year or second to last year. I brought him this book at training camp and he was amazed because he hadn't heard of Kalanithi and he hadn't heard of this book. Today, it seems like every athlete has their own podcast. But how many athletes have a book club that has its own podcast? Another month, another book, another podcast. Welcome back to the Andrew Luck Book Club podcast on Stephen Ambrose's undaunted courage. And, I'm and for the very first episode, Luck had on the wife of the author of the book that King had given Luck. But I love the part of the end where he talks about the sint, or I think it's you writing, Lucy, about the syntax of football plays. And I wish I could talk to him uh, about the syntax uh, of football plays. Would he really go into that? Yeah. I rem- Do you remember that, Stephen? You three were yeah, totally. sitting on the couch. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's hilarious. I would like uh, to ha- I would like to have him explain it to me. <laughs> Luck wasn't just reading Game of Thrones or the latest biography of a certain president. Stephen Holder says Luck would read about things very few people would want to read about, like concrete. This is the one of the biggest quirks of all. It was just, you know, he majors in architecture, so I don't know anything about architecture, but apparently Concrete's a big part of that, right? And so they're on this road trip to Cincinnati. It's a two-hour drive, so they just take a bus down here. They're on the bus, and they're pulling into town. He starts telling all his teammates about about how the, the buildings in the city were built with this particular type of concrete, which only Andrew Luck could possibly know. It's probably the only player in the NFL who would know this. And he's going on and on about this, and they have they all have this, these blank stares on their face like, dude, we don't care. He was literally, he had been reading a book about concrete. This is verified by two different players, Matt Hasselbeck among them. Yeah, he's a book about concrete. I, I cannot imagine what would prompt me to read a book about concrete. There's nothing on planet Earth that could prompt me to do that. Angel Luck read a book about concrete and then told everybody about it. And then they reacted the way you would react, any human being, like, dude, we don't care. Holder, who has covered the Colts for nine years now, remembers convincing Luck to sit down for a lengthy interview early in his career and how distinct the entire experience was. And one of the things that we asked was that, you know, because we did have this this concept of capturing all the sides of him, right? And so one of the things we asked him, and this was a photographer's idea, Michelle Pemberton, she said, uh, what about if we asked him to bring some of his like favorite reading material? It was like, it was sort of a prop, right? And it was so revealing to see what he brought. One of the books was the autobiography of Nelson Mandela. 
great choice, right? It's like 900 pages or something ridiculous, but it's so just how inquisitive he is just about just random topics. He also had an interesting magazine that I don't think I've ever read. It was Inc. Magazine. And it was, you know, this is a a magazine that profiles leaders in business and industry and, and innovative people. And they really had nothing to do with each other. But I think it showed you just what a, what a person of varied interest. And that is the part of Andrew Luck that, one of the parts at least, that always fascinated me the most. This guy is just fascinated about everything, interested in everything. And I remember some quotes in that story that still stick with me. One being this person telling me, you know, he's the type of person who can have a conversation with anybody about anything. It's 100% true. But that is why, also why I think he was such a great leader in the locker room and why he endeared himself to other players so much. It's in part because he was such an interesting person and interested in so many other things that he always found a way to relate to someone because he probably knew something about something they were interested in. There's also this he was perhaps the most polite quarterback in league history. It's my fault. It's my fault. Hey, my fault. Luck had this strange tendency to compliment opposing defenders after they'd driven him into the turf. I'm trying. Ah, you're pushing me down. Okay, help me out. Hold on, hold on. Little help, little help. Thanks, Philip. Most defenders were like, what the hell? Did he just say good hit? Dequell Jackson had heard about it when he was still in Cleveland. Defensive players around the league were talking about how different this dude was. I played against him before I ended up joining. I remember one of the defensive ends telling us like, hey, man, this guy just, I just hit him pretty good. And he, he told me, hey, man, that's a good hit. I'm like, what? The? So I'm thinking it's like a, a, it's a mind play. You know, I'm like, I'm like, nah, he's not that nice. There's no way. It's a mind play. But then you actually meet him. It's like, oh, no, he's as genuine as they come. He genuinely is that person. He's not, he doesn't have any other intentions other than, hey, man, good hit. And it, it threw me for a loop. I'm like, no, hell no. Like that, no, no. You need to get after the guys who who should be protecting you not to get hit, not the other way around. In a lot of ways, Luck just oozed football. Jackson says the quarterback couldn't contain himself when it came to the game. He had this like kitty mentality. The only other person I knew had a mentality like that in terms of playing the game that you love and everything else just is noise. Frank Gore, they love football. I love football. They love football so much. It made you question whether or not you love football enough. You know, they were, it's hard to really put it into words unless you're around them every day. But here's the thing, this great duality when it comes to Andrew Luck, the nerdy dorky exterior belied a vicious competitiveness underneath. In episode one, you heard David Shaw, his coach at Stanford, call it the monster he keeps under wraps. His teammates with the Colts, they saw it every single Sunday. If you only know Andrew Luck, from afar, oh, he's a nerd. There's some truth to that. He reads a lot of books. Terrible. But uh, but I think the thing that really comes across when you're close is just the competitor. And that was the thing that you can't get from afar. And I remember writing a story early in my time in Indianapolis about how, but just about how he conducted himself in the huddle. And I remember several players telling me, oh, yeah, like if you're not focused and you get out of line, Andrew Luck is on you. And I mean, he's dropping F-bombs in the huddle and he's telling guys like, get it together. Hey, can we focus? Can we focus? Get it in your eyes now. Get it in your eyes. Let's go. That was really just, it ran completely counter to, to what people thought Andrew Luck was. And I loved that because I think we cover these subjects and we love that they have layers. And this guy had layers for sure. And I loved that about him. And I think that was the beginning of me starting to understand 
who and what Andrew Luck really was. And he had that same capacity that the elite do, the uh, the Rogers, the Brady's, the Drew Brees's, to where the crazier the situation, the the calmer he got. In the coming years, Tom House would get to know Andrew Luck almost as well as anyone. The former major league pitcher and famed quarterback guru has spent the last few decades working with the best in the game. Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Matthew Stafford, Dak Prescott, Matt Ryan, Justin Herbert. Luck stood out to him then, and in House's mind, still stands out all these years later. And I don't know if you've seen the film of that. I forget what game it was where the ref was running back from the football uh, and he fell down. And Andrew was up the line calling out plays. He bent over, helped the ref up, pat him on the rear end, and didn't miss a beat in the call. And he didn't even remember doing that. Again, I've been I've been truly blessed as a kind of an outside consultant coach, be around some of the best, not only in football, but in baseball and golf. And Andrew is right up there in my top five. Teammates love him because he's authentic. He's different, but he's consistently different. And when you when it's predictable and authentic, then you'll get the whole the whole locker room. Um, understands and realizes what they have going on when he walks between the lines. For those there every week, it was fun as hell to watch. There was a sense, no matter if you were on the sidelines, sitting up in the stands, or in the press box, that Luck could pull the Colts out of any hole. 11 of his first 23 wins in the league featured a fourth quarter comeback. Think about that. 11 of 23. Every single snap could turn into a highlight. You know, there was just a feeling that, okay, if this game is remotely close in the fourth quarter, you better, as a defense, you better buckle down because Andrew Luck is coming. And you just knew it. It was like uncanny. It's an uncanny ability, just this unflappability. And that's the thing. I think so many young quarterbacks, they make critical mistakes at the most critical times. And that's the hardest thing for them to overcome a lot of times, right? We see this over and over and over again. They throw an interception on third down in the fourth quarter, and then that's basically the game. And those are the times when the pressure is the most and your mind is racing and your pulse is racing and there's so much going on and the defense is trying to fool you and disguise coverages and that's when you make mistakes they're just it's inevitable for young players except with Andrew Luck oftentimes that's when he rose to the occasion and actually I think played in many ways better than he did sometimes at other mundane moments and it was just really fascinating because there's just there's nothing like that as a team when you know, you just know, okay, look, we didn't play well today, but we got a shot because it's the seven-point game and it's the fourth quarter and Andrew Luck has the ball. I mean, it really wasn't any more complicated than that. Peter King says Luck had a combination of some of the best traits of the best quarterbacks in the league. He reminded me of sort of an amalgam of players. He reminded me a little bit in terms of his football intelligence. He reminded me of Peyton because nothing really surprised him. In body type and the way he played and the great arm he had, he reminded me of Roethlisberger. Bigger guy, really hard to bring down in the pocket. The combination of those two players at his peak, those are probably, that's probably the sort of amalgam uh, that that made up who Andrew Luck was like in, you know, 13 and 14 when he really started hitting it, hitting his stride and throwing for a lot of touchdowns and having the 400 yard games. And even though Luck is known for being incredibly bright, it's not like he was a robot at the quarterback position. 
May says that during his time in the league, Luck produced some of the most exciting football in the NFL. There was something just inherently exciting about the mechanics of the way that he played the quarterback position. It's almost like when you watch a great shooter and just like the when they start to rise up, the entire crowd kind of starts to rise up. And Andrew, when he would move up in the pocket, Aaron Rodgers does this a little bit where he has that kickstand front foot. With Rodgers, it was like a little bit more graceful. With Andrew, it was like watching a rocket take off. It was just special. Just watching him move in the pocket, it was refined without being robotic. And and that's so hard to do. And it's just, he looked perfect. He looked like a perfect quarterback prospect all the time who moved in this way that is exactly how you would teach it, exactly how you would do it, while also happening to be exciting and having this otherworldly skill set. When you go back and you watch that video of him playing against the Texans, you can hear the ball hitting people. <laughs> like you can hear it hitting shoulder pads. It just, so few guys have played the position that cleanly while also having that level of physical ability. Typically you have to play that way because you don't have the body and the arm and all of the things that Andrew Luck had, but he also had those things. And that's what made him so remarkable. The Colts had lost in the wild card round of the playoffs to Luck's rookie season, then the divisional round his second year. In 2014, his third season, he took off. Despite a bad offensive line and no run game, Luck led the league with 40 touchdown throws and threw for 4,700 yards. Sports Illustrated put him on the cover with the accompanying cut line. This is for a feature story arguing you'll be the best QB in the NFL by the end of the season. Your thoughts? Well, thanks, Luck shrugged. A lot of work to do to get to that. He was on his way. The Colts finished 11-5 for a third straight year, won a second straight AFC South title, and easily handled the Bengals 26-10 in the wildcard round of the playoffs. In that one, Luck made one of the most impressive plays of his entire career, shedding a would-be sack from Cincinnati defensive end Carlos Dunlap, then rifling a 36-yard throw to the corner of the end zone to Dante Moncrief. I remember Dunlap in the playoffs hanging on, you know, chasing him down from behind, you know, and he's about ready to get sacked, and we're like, oh, no, Andrew, go down or... You know, and he's almost on, he caught him from behind. He threw that touchdown pass, I think, to Moncrief. was an unbelievable play. The win over the Bengals set up a delicious second-round matchup the following week. Colts at Broncos. Luck versus Manny. The storylines were obvious. The stakes immense. There was still, uh, this is only his third year. And even though he had a lot of success, there's still going to be, at that point, there still was a a decent-sized segment of the fan base who still just unabashedly loved Peyton Manning and had a bitterness toward the Colts for parting ways. I get it, right? I mean, Peyton Manning, best player in franchise history, and they cut him, right? (laughs) So, like, that's that's a really hard thing to digest. So here's Andrew Luck. The guy who replaced him, but to step into those those shoes that just no one could possibly fill. And they're going on the road to Denver to play Peyton Manning's Broncos. And they had been in the Super Bowl the previous year, even though they lost. They were certainly a team with high expectations. And so here come the Colts, who hadn't really proven very much at that point. They had a great season, but certainly they were not favored to win that game. And Luck has the time. Fires it to the end zone. He's got the touchdown to Knicks. The Colts were the better team. Luck was the better quarterback. He threw for 265 yards and two touchdowns that day, engineering a 13-play drive in the fourth that melts eight minutes off the clock. 
Colts tight end Jack Doyle would later call it his favorite drive of his entire career. Adam Vinatieri's 30-yard field goal to cap that drive effectively sealed it, and the Colts won 24-13. And I thought he went in there and had an absolutely fantastic performance. He upstages Peyton Manning in his house, his second house, I guess. And I think that was the moment when I saw the most joy from Andrew Luck, or certainly one of the moments when, when I saw the most joy from Andrew Luck. He does his post-game interview, and he comes off the field, just running off the field. I remember us standing there in the tunnel outside the locker room, and he's just running and pumping his fist. He gets to the door of the locker room, and he just like bangs his fist on the door in just joy, just unadulterated joy. And it was like, who is this guy? We go down and beat Peyton Manning. That was sweet. In the locker room, that was sweet. Luck's former teammate, Dequell Jackson. Mr. Ursay, all the front off, we're chest bumping and we're high-fiving and we're dancing and just like, it was a moment that from a little child, you know, ever playing the game and thinking about the moments, the best moments you would have playing professionally, that year was definitely it for me, hands down. The Colts were routed in Foxborough the following week, the infamous Deflategate game. Put simply, the Colts could not match up with the Patriots up front. But the trajectory they were on was clear, and everyone following this team knew it. The Colts were close. A few more pieces at the right spots, and they could get over the hump. The expectations entering 2015 would be sky high. They lose the game. They were never really the better team. But I did feel like that night in Foxborough, I remember writing a column saying, you know what? Next year, the goal needs to be the Super Bowl. There was only one reason for my unbridled optimism that night, and it was because they got number 12. They've proven they could get to this point. The next step is to go all the way. And I really, that should be the goal coming into 2015. And then, well, 2015 happened. Yep, 2015 happened. And Andrew Luck's NFL career would never be the same. On the next episode of Luck. When I saw those hits, I just, everyone cringed. Because you know, if he doesn't get up, the land, the, the future of this franchise is instantly affected, no matter how how well the roster is constructed. From 2012 to 2016, talk about combined sacks and QB hits, 528 times, 34 more times than any other quarterback. I asked Andrew one time, I was like, what do you need? He's coach, I love the play action game. And the play action game doesn't work if we don't, if we don't run the ball. And he was so right. You want me you want me to perform? Give me a running game. You want me to perform? Build the offensive line. Took the shot and he was urinating blood and I think it was his kidney or liver or some internal organ. I remember talking to a, a medical expert. The sort of injury you sustain in a car crash, basically. You get broadsided by a pickup truck. That's when you rupture, rupture your kidney. He did this in football. Thank you for listening to episode three. All six episodes of Luck are available right now. Go to The Athletic Football Show on your favorite podcast player to find the rest of the series. Luck was written and narrated by Zach Kiefer. The executive producers are Mike Smeltz and Matt Havia. The Athletic's head of audio is Andrew Wasserman.